Welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board gaming. I'm your host Albert, and this is episode 71, A Marvel of Victorian Engineering. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is episode 71, I'm pretty excited, I don't know why, but this seems like a big milestone for me that we've made it this many episodes. I think we've got a really good show today. This is episode... I have an interview with Tony Boydell, designer of Snowdonia, and I'm going to talk about the game Snowdonia, which I, I've played a bunch these last few weeks and I've enjoyed a whole lot. few things to mention for news, not too much. I think I really need to hire some news desk or something like that. The first one, the 2015 Solitaire Print and Play Design Contest is now underway. Uh, if you are interested, you could go ahead and submit a game for the contest. You don't need much at this point. You just need a, a thread and a, an idea. And start working on that and get some feedback from people and hopefully come up with a great game. If you've ever had an inkling to design a game, I think this is a great way to try it. A lot of people participate in the contest. A lot of people give feedback and input and help out anybody designing a game. So I think it's a, it's a great way to get your feet wet if you haven't tried it yet. I will include links to the contest in the show notes. Now you do have a long time still to design the game. The entry deadline is not until August 2nd. Corrections you have until August 9th. And the voting deadline is September 13th. So you basically have the next uh, 8 months or so, 7 months to submit to, to work on your game. It should be plenty of time hopefully. The next item of news, I have no idea how new this is, but I just came across it today or yesterday. There is a new expansion announced for Castle Panic. It should be out, I think, in the summer of next year. This one is called The Dark Titan. The Dark Titan. And the big baddie of the Castle Panic world is coming out to get your castle himself now. So he brings a lot of bigger monsters to fight and bigger boss monsters and all that. It looks like it adds more challenge to the game. It also adds some things for the player to help him out a little bit. The, the boss monster is uh, has 8 hit points, which is way, way bigger than anything else in the base game. So it should make the game a lot more challenging. The third item is uh, there is a new po- podcast on solitary gaming called Solo Boarding by Ava Jarvis. This is a video podcast. She's on her fourth episode or so. It also There's also an audio version available. For those of you like myself that don't really have the patience to watch video anymore for some reason. I've been enjoying those a lot. Well, today I am talking with Tony Boydell, designer of a. Oh, oh boy, <laughs> I'm off to bed, sir. <laughs> today I'm talking to Tony Boydell, designer of uh, Snowdonia and, and quite a few other games, and I, I believe owner of uh, Surprise Stair Games. Hi, Tony, are you I, there? Yeah, yeah, I'm one of the one of the guys in Surprise Stair Games. Yeah, it's myself and uh, a chap called Alan Paul who designed quite a lot of games in the 1980s. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, it's not a one-man show by any means. No, it's uh, lots of us involved. Well, four of us. Okay, that's still a lot. Um, so I I don't know anything about Paul. I have to look him up. Um, so well, Al- yeah, Alan is um he's he's done a couple of games that you might have well uh, old school gamers might have heard of. It's um, Siege was one of his. City of Sorcerers. These are these are sort of nineteen late seventies early eighties sort of. Okay. Old, that sort of style games with chits and and all sorts of other bits and pieces. Standard games, I think he did a lot of stuff with. So he also did a game called Confucius in the mid two thousands, which is uh, 
absolutely tremendous. It's a sort of worker placement, but with a very strong Chinese feel to it. Okay, I think I've heard of that one. So, so you've also designed a few games. Um, I want to talk to you about Snowdonia today, especially. But you, you've been designing for a few years because I, I recognize a few of your other games. I remember hearing about um, Copper Twaddle a few years ago on the Spiel podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was actually the first game that I sort of d- designed and actually, we actually got published when Alan and I started Surprise Stare Games. We wanted something relatively straightforward to produce. And uh, out of all the things that we had ready, really, Copper Twaddle was, was my card game. And it's just 55 cards, so nice and straightforward to produce. So we went ahead with that. We sort of dipped our toe in the water, really. But it's, um, it's one of my favorite designs, even though it's sort of quite a long time ago. Okay. Yeah, ever since I heard about it, I've always wanted to play, but I just haven't ever come across the game yet. Well, I mean, I've got copies lying around here, just a few left. I think oh, most of okay. them are gone. <laughs> I'm happy to send you a copy. That's no problem at all. <laughs> okay. The, um, and you also designed Fizz, I think, which I, I played once. Yeah, Fizz, the, uh, the robot game. Yeah, that, again, that's that. Yeah, these, all, these all sort of came out of, um, I don't know where they came from, really. They just sort of... <laughs> They, they are quite different, really. Fuzzed is, is all multiplayers. Copper Toddle is two players. Tatemo is a, is a family game, 3D building. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff, really. I, I guess I was bottling all of this up. And then when, when I got together with Alan and we started Surprise Stare, um, he sort of took the cork out of the bottle, really, and just, and uh, it all started happening. Oh, but neat. Okay. But so how long have you been gaming? I've been gaming for oh for for donkeys years. I think I think in the mid '80s I started when I was in uh, Polytechnic in Liverpool. I started um, doing a bit of role playing, and then I came back in my year out and we did a bit, bit of uh, diplomacy and risk, um, card games, role. It did a lot of role playing. We, we carried on doing in the background, but then we played games like um, Shogun, or I think it's um, what was it called then? Samurai Swords. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mike Gray's fantastic game. We loved. Loved playing uh, Shogun, um, and that and that's that's it really. It sort of went back and, and it developed from there. Really, magic is the thing that kicked started me in the mid nineties, though. Mm-hmm. Kind of forgot about board games then until Magic came out. Yeah, and same here. Played it all the time. Really got into it. Spent silly amount of money over the years on it. <laughs> yeah, my son is really into a uh, Pokemon now. He he's about to turn seven, and he just loves the idea of the game. And I'm yeah. scared about. I know how much money could get lost in these sort of things because I remember playing Magic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing is, it, it, it starts the way it always does. I mean, somebody gave me one of the gift sets, the revised edition gift sets, and you get a couple of dual lands in there, you know, and you don't realize at the time what these things are going to be like. Mm-hmm. And then some gives you an internet list of all the cards that are currently available. And so you think, oh, all right, I'll try and collect all of them then because there's only about <laughs> 500 of them. It'll be easy, won't it? <laughs> and then some of them, you know, I think it was somebody was trying to sell a time walk for 75 quid. This is in sort of 1995, 96. And we said, 75 quid for a card? Never pay 75 quid for a card. Wow, and yeah. I yeah, I, I kind of got burned out when I had one. There's one card that I bought, Icy Manipulator. I decided, you know, I, I had one and I really want another one. And it was, it was like $35, which is not a huge, huge amount of money. But still, it was. I'd never spent anywhere near that much on a card. And I finally decided to buy it, and a couple months later, I find out they're re-releasing it in the Ice Age expansion, and, and that kind of soured me on it there. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, then they, they did get into that business of certain cards would never get reprinted. And we've had various flavors of all sorts of the wonderful cards since then. But uh, yeah, but I used to play a lot of Magic in the 2000s. And then um, I switched to board games because I, I went into a really bad sulking patch. I couldn't win a game of Magic. So I went into a massive sulk and just uh, sat on the board gamer side of the room for a long time. And then uh, and then stopped being interested in Magic and just much more interested in board games. And it took off from there, really. What kind of games do you like now? I'm a bit of a sucker for Euro games, to be honest with you. I do like, you know, the dynamics of the of the Euro game. I like the thinking. I, I'm not such a fan of the the dice rolly combatty sort of stuff. Um, okay. We do play Risk Legacy as a, as a little campaign amongst our group, but I'd much rather be sitting playing Agricola or Panamax or Phoenicia or something like that, Suburbia. Lots of the classics, you know. Gotcha. Yep. Do you play a lot of solitaire games? Uh, not really. Um, I'm a bit more of a social bird, really. But um, Snowdonia was the was the time I really sort of started thinking about solitaire games. And I, I've been recently quite addicted to Sheffy. I don't know whether you've heard of Sheffy, the Japanese card game about multiplying your flock of sheep. Yeah, I have heard of it. It's a little bit expensive to get, though. Well, I yeah, I was... I decided to, I met the guys that, that produced it in, in Essen this year and I managed to scrounge a copy from under their, their table. Um, I did a swap and then um, I took it home and then I thought, well, I, why don't I just contact them and find out how much it costs? And, uh, and I just sort of said, look, you know, can I get a box of these things? And they said, well, it's going to cost this much to ship them. You might as well get 48. So I, I just ordered a box of 48 of these things, put an advert on my blog and they all sold out within, I think about four hours. Wow, okay. So I've now got a waiting list, so I'm going to get another. I'll put you on the waiting list if you want, Al, but it's... Uh, yeah, I might do that. I'm going to look into that. Yeah, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a really odd little game. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pure puzzle. Lovely little maths puzzle, but it's... It, I don't know, it has a slightly hypnotic quality for me. So yeah, I don't really play a lot of sol- solitaire games. I've got um, Robertson Crusoe. I bought that before Christmas. Okay. Um, and that scares me a bit, because once you lay it all out on the table, there's quite a lot... <laughs> <laughs> it is it's intimidating but it's it's a really neat game though and there's a lot of mathy kind of thinking in that one yeah i think I'm, I'm i'm slightly scared and i do need somebody to hold my hand which is you know so i might play a solitaire game as long as somebody's there to help me if you see what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah my wife got me the uh, robinson crusoe expansion for christmas but i haven't tried that out at all yet that sure looks like a, a neat, it's a neat idea well it's i really you game. know robinson crusoe is fantastic in the sense that there's such a lot of theme there that it is. It's almost like sitting there and reading a book. You just you're just being a bit more interactive with the book, and I can see the appeal of that in terms of you know in solitaire gaming. Um, and yeah, then now it's, for me, it's it's easier because I've, most of my children are no longer sort of toddling about. I've got one youngster who's nearly seven, so he's not really a toddler at all now. So but before I could never leave a game set up anywhere. You know, and that's what you really need to do with some games, isn't it? You just need to set them out, leave them, and, and go off. Yeah, oh, I can't do that. I've got dogs and cats, and it would just not work out for me. Well, I end yeah. up setting it up just to get the feel of setting it up, then put it away, and the next day set it up again, and then it goes a little bit quicker and, and find ways to store the game and such it'll be easy to bring back out. But yeah, that becomes a game in itself. <laughs> Actually, my son was watching me play Snowdonia the other day, and he was asking if he could play with me. Well, that's excellent. I mean, yeah. it works really well as a two-player game as well. Yeah, I, I have, I'll have to teach him. I don't know if he's going to be able to f- 
grasp it quite yet. I'm sure he could figure out the, follow the mechanics fine, but I don't think he'll get the strategy. Yeah. Or somewhere. So, so how did the theme for the game come out? Where did that come from? Well, um, when I was at Essen, I think it was about 2005, 2006, um, we, the Steam, uh, Age of Steam was really big and there were lots of maps coming out and we were joking about how we would do a, a railway game because uh, surprise their games, you always like to think that we, we, we add a little something different to a theme maybe to take a different approach to, to a game design. And, um, and I suggested, well, instead of a game where you're the top-hatted sort of share-dealing entrepreneur, that you would actually be the guy that digs the railway. <laughs> and it's difficult to have a, a game about digging the railway if it's lots of different railways. So I thought, well, why not pick a railway? There, there is just one. You start at the bottom, you end up at the top. And then it made me think of this railway up in, in North Wales, in Snowdonia. Snowdon is a fantastic, Snowdonia is a wonderful place to, to, to walk and to, and to sort of holiday. And in Victorian ages, uh, lots of people visited there, but it was quite impractical. You know, most people couldn't get to the top. You know, you'd have to be sort of gentlemen with their big boots and walking sticks and so mm -hmm. on, hip flats. Um, but then this, the chap up there had a, had a great idea of actually building a railway up there. And then you could bring your old aunt along with you and she could come up on the train while everybody else took the, took the long way up. <laughs> so it was a money-making exercise, really, a, 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 an enterprise in tourism. And so they built this railway and... Um, they actually they built it over the space of about 15 months, I think it was. Um, okay. But they built the actual railway itself to the top in 72 days. They spent most of their time building the viaducts. Wow, okay, so that's fast. And so, this was in the 1800s? This was 1894, 1895 that okay. they built the railway up there. Wow. And so with having this conversation and joking about the railway, the first thing I did was go online and have a look about the history of the actual railway itself because I went there when I was a little boy went up on the railway and I don't remember much about it but um so I read about it it had stations and it had things to do and that was the starting point really that then I thought well there's something here there's a there is a theme here there is something I can work on that's pretty impressive I mean it doesn't it sounds like a crazy idea it sounds like it started as a joke entirely but it actually worked out really well well you could say that about the railway as well I mean most people <laughs> thought the guy was absolutely mad you know how are you going to do this it's a mountain it's got snow on the top you know in the winter time I mean, there were photographs recently of, um, I think it was a couple of years ago, they had to close it and sort of, even the guys maintaining it couldn't get to the top because there were eight-foot snowdrifts all over the wow. track. And so so the, the train is still there in the track? Yeah. Wow, okay. Oh, yeah, it's an incredibly popular tourist attraction. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a major thing up there. And when, what is there at the top? Is it just walk around and hike sort of thing, look around, or are there shops or restaurants or anything like that? Well, there's a there's a visitor center, so the train comes in at basically the top station, the summit station has got a, a cafe and a and a gift shoppy type thing. Okay. But you could only stay there because so many people that go up and down there that you can only stay there for half an hour, and then the train takes you back down again. So they have to get a lot of people sort of through the mountain in the summer because it's such a popular place to be. Okay, sounds sounds very much like a tourist trap. Yeah, absolutely. I think you guys have got something over there a bit similar. The the Mount Washington. I've never been to that one. Well, you got the Cog Railway. I think that actually precedes the Snowden Railway. I think the Cog that oh, goes okay. up Mount Washington is the is the is one of the first that ever did that. So oh, okay, we got so many other. I mean, similar in the in the tourist trap kind of thing where you go, you get shuffled through, and then you leave. I, I've been to a few caves that way. 
Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, that means some of the best caves, you want to stay there all day. But uh, mm-hmm. obviously, if, if everybody feels that way, then there's a whole lot of people outside who don't get to see it. I guess that's the thing. <laughs> yep. Secret is to go in the non-busy time of the year, and then you can mooch about a bit more. Yeah, that's right. Um, so how did the the solo rules come out for this game? Did you were you thinking you're going to add solo rules to the game from the get-go, or is that something that evolved over time? I I hadn't really thought of the solo, and to be honest, the two-player version of the game wasn't wasn't play tested much at all. Um, up to the point where I sort of sent a, an email off to look out games. I'd heard I was looking around, and I my my games room and I saw a copy of um, Welcome to Walnut Grove and I had a Grickler there in La Havre and I thought you know it's worth sending the idea of Snowdonia off to look at games because it's very much in their in their style and I'm a huge fan of a Grickler as anybody mm-hmm. who knows me knows um, and I thought well it's worth them having a you know they can only say no can't they and um, Hanno uh, Mr. Lookout himself um, wrote back saying Snowdonia was his favorite place in the world to be he really likes going there with his family Oh wow! Um, and yes he'd love to see the game and I sent it off and he sent back and he played the two-player game as that has his sort of introduction to it and I was really sort of crestfallen because I hadn't hadn't done any play testing with the two-player at all I spent all my time with my gaming group and we just always played at least three four or five players and he said oh I like I really like this you need to tidy up the two-player and also a solo variation would be really good as well because lookout games all have pretty much all have solo variations that's right they 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 really like those i think just about every game they've published has a solo variant yeah i mean he said firstly it's good because people like to learn a relatively complex game themselves before they teach it to a group so if you've got a solo variant that can teach them the flow um but also solo gaming and like two-player gaming, it is often often ignored. Two-player variations of some of the bigger Euro games are often sort of quite poor because you know it's sort of an afterthought. And I was worried that the solo and the two-player would be a bit of an afterthought. But my playtesters really came to. And I say playtesters; they were my mates. You know, <laughs> my mates spent a lot of time looking at me, going, "Oh, we're not going to test this again, are we?" And uh, yeah, so they really came through on it, and. Uh, Luckily, the, the, the central elements of Snowdonia, um, the mechanics worked really nicely anyway. They were already proven with the multiplayer. We, we lost our, you know, somehow my program stopped recording the conversation, so we have unfortunately lost a bit, and I guess we will just go forward from there. <laughs> is, it, is it recording now? Can you see it? It, it? does. It did say it's recording. It told me it's recording this time. It started, and I don't think it had that screen last time. I feel really bad for any listeners because they're going to have lost some really amazing conversation. Well, we tried, let's try it again. Yeah, so we were talking about the solo game and how that came from the multiplayer mechanics. Yes. Yeah, the, 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 all that multiplayer testing had proved that the heart of the game was, was really strong. And actually, um, the events and, and the weather system, uh, which are a blight to the multiplayers as well as the other players themselves, it's the perfect foil for the solo player because it, it is that sort of hidden player, that, that sort of ghost player that, that's keeping you going. So it's, it's really really quite easy to get it sort of tidied up uh, and, and put into a solo version. So you didn't have to put a whole lot of effort into making a solo game, just, you just had to like find it in there in a way. Yeah, I sort of dig it out, if you like, a bit like the excavation in the <laughs> game. It was, yeah, it's... I think it's a testament because the game took a long time to get to, to that point. You know, I mean, talking this was early 2012 
I, I sent it to Lookout Games to, for them to have a look at. And um, it had been in development, as we saw, talking about from about 2006. So I'd spent a lot of time, a couple of years, just hammering those basic mechanics, the way that the actions resolve and the number of spaces and what they did and what they didn't do. And yeah, I, I, and, the, and the sort of the, the frequency of cubes in the bag and the events and which order they should all come out. So that was all done and dusted. So it was really sort of sandpapering to a smooth edge. Oh, okay. Um, so I, I've noticed you, you post a lot about the game on BGG. Do you still enjoy playing the game? Yeah, I, I, unashamedly, I love playing it. Although I do feel a bit awkward about sort of pushing it on the on the other gamers at the games club. But thankfully, there are a few peeps there that that, that really enjoy it too. Now, I, I think it's a bit odd if a, a games designer um, doesn't want to play their game. I I, 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 can, I can understand. I mean, it depends what type of game it is and whether it, you know you've been playtesting it for for years and years. But I, I still have a I, I still enjoy playing it, and I, I guess because I'm still sort of in the back of my mind, still designing expansions. I'm sort of just playtesting and exploring through through normal games as well. So, yeah, I do love playing it. Yeah, and there's a lot of variety in the game. the The weather, for example, changes every game, and and what contract cards are available and what order they're available. All that really impacts how the game's going to play out each time. Yeah, I mean replayability. I think. Uh, there, there are a number of things that, that, that sort of it's almost like a, a weird mission statement underlying the design of, of, of Snowdonia. One was it needed to be replayable. I love the replayability of games like um, Agricola and La Havre. The fact that you can you can just get different games each time you, you sit down and play, particularly Agricola. I mean, it's just just wonderful that moment you pick up your cards and go right. What am I going to do this game? Mm-hmm. I, wanted, I wanted Snowdonia to be the same. I wanted you to sort of sit down and go, right. I didn't want people to start with cards, you know, to sort of give them a start of a goals. I wanted wanted people to sort of pick up things as they went through. Um, and one of the other mission statements is time. I didn't want um, – a lot of worker placements are absolutely brilliant. But, you know, two hours in, everyone's just really fed up and they've they've had enough. And that's a shame because these, these some of these games are absolutely fantastic. But they have begun to outstay their welcome. And Snowdonia, you can play, we've played five-player games with, with five people who know what they're doing in 75 minutes. And wow, okay. That's a lot. That's that's a short time for, a, that's a lot of game in 75 minutes. Um, but that's what the events do. The events keep the whole thing going. And if players aren't doing things because the weather's been terrible, then the game will carry on doing them. So um, you do get odd experiences at either end of the bell curve. You know, you get the super sunny games or you get the super terribly rainy, foggy games. But most of the games, I, I hope people find challenging and interesting and quick. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the sunny, well, the sunny ones are probably a little bit easier. But then again, I also found that the the events happened more for me when I was playing a sunny game. Yeah, well, the thing is, when they do happen, they're much more severe because the game lays more track or digs up more observation spaces. So, really, I suppose with I suppose at the start of the game, if you look at the events track, the excavation is one of the first events that happens. So, if you start the game and the first piece of weather in round in round two is going to be sun, there's always a worry. You could you you know if if a white cube comes out, that's it. The first four excavation spaces will be cleared of cubes. So you can see. With the, with the weather that's coming up, what's going to happen? I suppose in the solo game, you've got to pay attention even more because you've got limited time uh, and limited resources to sort of to, to get in the right places. Now, you can use that to your advantage, which is quite fun in the solo game, 
to to know I actually want the game to do these things. And you sort of engineer the bag to be empty at the right point and full at the right point. I, I haven't gotten anywhere near that good yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, neither have I, but it's nice to talk <laughs> as if I know what I'm doing. There are <laughs> it sounds great. <laughs> um and and you have quite a few expansions already. There's the the one that's been published, the Mount Washington and Jungfrau. The Jungfrau, that's Jungfrau. right, yeah. And yeah, then the, a few others that are a little harder to find. Yeah, the Daffodil Line we did I did it last. The Daffodil Line was um it's based on a railway that's very close to me actually where I where I live now. Um and the idea in that is you, you're you filling in spaces as well as digging rubble out of them. So you, you, you take the rubble you've taken from some spaces and you put it back into others. The idea being that you, you're filling in canals because the railway was built over the old canal system between Hereford and, and Gloucester. Um, so I thought that was an interesting tweak. And, and you can also collect daffodils for doing that. And daffodils stack up to earn you loads of points if you can get bunches of them in the game. Um, but we did that as uh, 750 copies because I really didn't know um how people would you know w- were taking to snowdonia it was do- did did really well we sold out the first edition the second edition kickstarter was really popular but i didn't know what the sort of the the ongoing life was going to feel like um i didn't know whether people really wanted more expansions or whether they were happy with what they got and we were really surprised that when we went to essen with the daffodil line it had all it had all gone you know and people were trying to get copies of it afterwards um and i'm such a kind-hearted chap. I can't bear the thought of people not being able to <laughs> do stuff. I, I've put, we've put the files up so people can print and play their copy of the Daffodil line if they really, really want to get a copy of it. So, so people have done that. They've, you know, Arts Cow has probably been sending out a few copies of it, um, and I'm quite happy mm-hmm. with that. Because, um, at least people get to play it, which is better than nothing at all. Um, but then this year we learned our lesson. We did a few more copies of the necropolis line which is where your surveyor has died and you've got to go and dig him a grave and build him a headstone um and again they all sold out um i've got a few actually got a few copies lying around here so if anybody is is listing who wants a copy then they should get in touch via geek mail because i've got a few left okay so, yeah they're great fun to do i mean jungfrau as we mentioned that's got dynamite in it uh daffodil line's got daffodils and filling in canals young uh, necropolis line has got the dead surveyor. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Matt Washington has got um, the shingles, the devil shingles, which is the guy sliding down the mountain at the end of the game. So they're all adding something a little bit different around the basic the basic idea. I sort of compare them a bit to the power grid maps, you know, that um, Friedman Fries does. So you all know how to play the basic game, but the maps always add something a little bit different to make it more interesting. And that's what I try and do with the expansions. Okay. Yeah, and uh, we talked a little bit about the Jungfrau one, and that, I think some of the audio that we lost, and that that was interesting. You mentioned how the dynamite works there, and then you have you have to actually excavate before you even get to the rubble. So yeah, yeah, you got you don't know how, where the track cards are going to be or in what order because you have these um, Jungfrau track cards, which are sort of spaces that you have to dynamite first, and then you turn them over and they tell you how much how many cards are going to be there and therefore how much rubble is going to be there. So you're sort of blindly dynamiting your way at the mountain as well as sort of um, dynamiting the spaces that are already there on the stations. Dynamite's great fun because it actually gets rid of the rubble to the back into the general supply rather than um, able for people to take it. So anybody that's quite happy with the old take rubble score off contract card strategy can find that that all goes away from them when their opponents start blowing the mountain up under their noses. So... 
Yeah, it adds a little bit of mystery, adds a little bit of uh, sort of tension to it. You know, what's coming up next? Yep. In the in the solo game, I played that one a couple of days ago, and I found that the there was definitely some strategy about when I should blow up a rubble versus hope an event takes care of it for me. Yeah, that's the that's that's the thing to do in Snowdonia, isn't it? Try and how can I get the manipulate things so the game does the stuff that I don't want to do to leave all the juicy bits for me. Yeah. Yep. And um. Do you plan to continue releasing expansions? It sounds like you might. Yeah, I mean, I've I've got a couple of things uh, in in my sort of playtesting box, but I've uh, with the Necropolis Railway, we also did the uh, Neuhauser Bockelbahn, um, designed by Sebastian Bleasdale, the, cha- the chap who developed the splendid um, Key Flower, um, and, mm-hmm. I, and it's quite fun because I know a lot of Brit designers. We meet up a lot at various events, and um, we're all good pals. And, and I'm having a lot of fun getting them to design Snowdonia scenarios because a lot of them play-tested Snowdonia for me over the years. So it's great to see the, some of the stuff. So there's a Victorian Channel Tunnel scenario, which is fantastic. I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens with that. Oh, neat. Um, uh, a friend of mine from Japan, Mr. Hisashi Hayashi, has designed uh, one for the Mount Hakone in Japan, and that's that's really interesting. So there's, there's a few more expansions in the pipeline yet, yeah, and a lot of them with designed by by friends okay yeah i'd mentioned in, in one of my emails to you that i'd love to see one about the 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 golden spike basically that race to build the u.s continental rail system yeah i mean that the, the race element's great fun because that that really suits two players specifically and, and yeah. most of the scenarios are sort of suitable were still suitable one to five um but the victorian underground sort of the channel tunnel and that's specifically for two players. And I think something like a, a golden spike would would have to be two players. I think you'd want you'd want to have that that fantastic sort of that feeling of the racing tension. Yeah, that's right. Though, you know, I've thought about that before because I think they'd make a neat game. It'd be a little bit different because it, when they when they built this track, two different companies were from opposite ends of the country. One of them was going through grasslands and plains and had it relatively easy, while the other one's going through mountains. So it was a completely different experience for the two, the two companies. Yeah, I mean that sounds like it would be really good fun for um, for, for players. To, I suppose it's a bit like playing the old Middle Earth TCG, where you know you play one game as as the mountain builders and, and one game as the plains builders, and you, and you and you just sort of you have to perform well in both to win oh, over. Well, that would be quite fun, couldn't it? I think. Yeah, I've never I've never played that one. I, have to, I think I have that game, but I've never played it. Well the, well, the original Middle Earth TCG, the one with Sauron's eye on the back, um, that one yes. where I think you played games as the, as as Sauron and you played games as the Fellowship. God, it was such a long time ago. I think it got drowned out by magic, but I do remember picking a couple of decks up when it first came out. This is mid '90s, I think. But I like the idea of of not just playing a game, scoring and see who's won, but actually playing, having to play the game a couple of times, and each person having to sort of take the different the different element of. Mm-hmm. Do better. So let's jump forward. What uh, what other plans do you have for the future? I know you've mentioned a couple of the games in the past, and I saw there's one on BGG that is going to be published in 2015, according to BGG anyway. Um, Guilds of London. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is according to BGG because that's the date I put into the okay. <laughs> into the thing. But yeah, I mean, Guilds of London is is a is another game. It was sort of ideas and started development about the same time as Snowdonia, but it's taken a little longer to get to where it is. Um, but I'm that's that's uh, a real labour of love that one. I've I really high hopes for that. 
Um, it's an area control game. It's card driven, so it has a uh, a, a TC. If you're a TCG player, you'll you'll really like it because it's got those elements of collecting the right cards, saving them up, and then um, sort of using them in, in great combo turns and getting lots of interesting things done. Um, it's currently labelled as two to four in one, in one part of VGG, and it's one to four in another part. I really must work on the solo game. If one thing I've learned from Snowdonia is get the solo game right as well, because you you guys are such a big community out there. Um, yeah, it surprises yeah. me how many people yeah, it's great. seem to like solo games. Yeah, I know. And I could be hard-hearted about it and say I want to sell a few more copies. And therefore, <laughs> But I, I think it's interesting. I think what I learned from Snowdonia is that if you've worked hard on the mechanics, then then a lot of this should work naturally, whether it's one player or five players, you know, it's, um, we shall see, we shall see. Mm. I did, I, I just have to spend a bit more time on it, but we're working on the art and layouts for it now, which is very exciting because it is a very beautiful looking game. Okay. So are you, do you feel the, the game mechanics are pretty well nailed down at this point or? Uh, yeah. Because if you've got a game that involves cards and it's card driven, you have to be really careful with, the card combos, the costs of cards um, that trigger those combos. And a lot of work has gone into, into costing everything absolutely right. And, and, and I, a couple of, couple of uh, my gaming friends were notoriously good TCG players. And so we, we, in the early days, you'd, they'd pick a, a couple of cards and play out a combo and have an outrageously successful turn. And uh, i just write down on my bit of paper, must sort that out, you know, must. <laughs> but... Uh, okay. torpedo some of those combos because they're just too powerful. <laughs> so yeah uh, that's guilds of london and that's that's that is imminently um sort of in production if you like that's i'm working with a with a with a company on doing that which is very exciting okay. does each player have their own deck of cards or is it a shared no, deck? it's the shared deck um and then there are sort of cards that you can collect during the game that give you game end bonuses so you do have the dynamic of um well, it's really sort of that um, it is a shared deck. So some people will complain that they never draw the good cards and others will complain they always draw the big cards. But it, it doesn't work out that way. It's one of those games where, yeah, you might have a terrible draw in one round, but actually there are plenty of ways of mitigating what you've got. Um, and I've seen plenty of players beat me rather roundly, despite them having what is perceived as poor cards. Um, I think it's a game where people will just need to need to sort of feel the flow of it really and get to get to learn you know what to keep what to use a lot of players will be quite happy to use all their cards in a turn and then set there with no cards for a couple of rounds because they have to stock back up more careful players will 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 nurture key cards and then have an explosive turn and do do a lot of damage so yeah i'm, I'm looking forward to to getting that out there really so you also on the one player guild you also mentioned a game once called uh, lux eterna What's that about? Yeah, yeah, it's my it's my take on 2001, A Space Odyssey, which is one of my favourite films of all time. Very atmospheric film, um, lovely sort of paranoia to it. And I, I thought this would be perfect for a solo game. And so I spent a lot of time listening to the wonderful soundtrack and trying to get sort of get a feel to the game that, that, that felt like being stuck on a spaceship on your own, especially when the, when the spaceship is sort of falling apart around you. Um, so the idea behind Lux Turner is that uh, your ship is damaged and you're trying to repair the various systems. There are six systems in the game. But also you put out a distress call and something's coming to what you thought was your rescue. But actually, it turns out is a little bit more threatening than that. So 
you have to fix your ship, which means basically survive to the end of the deck um, um, before this thing arrives or before your ship just completely collapses around you. So the systems have a sort of a bonus if you make them successfully operational, which is good, or they have a, a detrimental thing if they if they finally collapse because um, you haven't been able to fix them properly. Okay. So that's the basic idea of the game. Okay, and uh, this was being playtested a while ago. Is that still going through playtesting, or is that well, it's come, Yeah, it's come back to me now. I mean, I put it on the Solo Guild just to see what people thought, and I had some fantastic advice from that. A couple of guys did really sterling jobs giving a, a hammering um and i was showing it to a couple of guys at essen and they were really interested in it but the, a lot of the feedback came back saying well you need to make it a two-player game as well <laughs> solo game on its own is not a it's not a saleable item as you know as far as they're concerned even though things like friday is, is you know is absolutely fantastic chefy is really wonderful um but I, it got to me thinking actually if i if i extend the 2001 theme then it'd be really great for the two-player to have somebody play Dave Bowman or my version of Dave and somebody to play HAL 9000. Um, mm, so okay. now I'm back with me to play test that to see whether I can get a really interesting dynamic between the human player and the computer player. Um, okay. So, yeah, okay. so that one's, that one's a, a, way, a way off yet. I don't rush these things. I tend to sort of tootle on with my designs um, until something inside me goes, ding, that's ready now, and then I can... Um, take it forward but nice. yeah that's coming on a real treat and it's really a testament to the one player guild for the amount of uh, encouragement and effort they put in really it's been brilliant yeah it's it's always fun to to be able to see a, a nice idea come along and to be able to help out in it it's such a cool theme i mean it just i just i just love this idea of you know some poor bloke stuck in the middle of nowhere you know things popping and exploding around him and you know, it's just himself. He's just got to get through it. And I just love that idea. But my my brothers-in-law are both musicians. And um, I've actually asked one of them if he can write me a little bit of a soundtrack to go with it as well. So that'd be quite cool. Oh, neat, so, yeah. Not necessarily as a timer, but just something atmospheric to go on in the background while you're playing it. You know, lay it out on the table, switch the lights down low, stick on the music, get yourself freaked out. That's what I want. That sounds nice. That sounds really <laughs> cool. The uh, so so the game when it comes out potentially would be a two-player game, well, a one or two-player game, and it sounds like the yeah, one or two. It it uh, it would yeah, I think that's that's where I'd go about it. So it I mean it works really well as a solo. I'm really pleased with it as a solitaire. I really do want to get the the, the two-player dynamic as well, because then it makes it something a little bit more unusual. And do you think the the solitaire version will be playable from both sides or just the one side? Uh, what what do you mean? Sorry. I mean the at, would the solitaire player have the option of being hell also? Well, I actually hadn't thought of that. Okay. <laughs> I, yeah, I hadn't actually thought of that. I, I might have. A, I, might, I think I have. If I get the two player game working, then 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 I can look at it and say, well, actually. Because they're going to need to be different goals. Yep. There are different effects for the systems for the solo, but some of them don't translate very well into into the idea of sort of two players. So um, I'm going to have to develop a series of goals purely for the two player version. But there's no reason, as you say, why I couldn't sort of just flip it around really and have different goals for different different roles. If you like, there's a good tagline: different roles for different goals. No, <laughs> the other. Way. Something like that, yeah. So well, I, I know a lot of people complain a lot of times when they see a game and it's got solo rules, and they always say, "Oh, they just added on the solo rules." 
and you know I can't play the whole game and I wish I could and so I, I could I could see imagine somebody saying well you know this game is a two-player game and they added the one-player version so I could play the human but why can't I play the computer which would be ironic since it was actually started as a solo game yeah yeah, well, I, I shall have to think about it. If I if I do develop it, I'll I'll make sure you get a playtest credit because uh, <laughs> developers credit because you give me the idea. I will um, even try and play it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've, I've noticed I've gotten less willing to print out stuff lately. I don't know why that is, but I'm, I'm and shame on me, but I'm doing less print and playing than I used to. Well, it's um yeah. The thing is with arts cow, I think if I was going to go. To a to a beta play test for something like Luxi Turner, I'd I'd turn to ArtsCan and get a whole bunch of sets. Uh, my business business partner and gaming pal Alan Paul has has done a, a an air a carrier. It's called Carrier Strike. It's a it's sort of a war game, and it's dice driven with some cards. But it's one of these eight. It's a micro game, eighteen cards, and he's produced a whole bunch of the initial play test copies just using ArtsCan. So he's got some really nice quality prints done, and then he's just handing—he was handing them out to people who are interested. So oh, I might okay. play with Lux. It's—it's it's quite card intensive. I think it's going to need about ninety-nine cards in total at the end. But um, that's a, just a couple of decks from from Artscan. Yeah, if you time it right, that's not actually very expensive. Yeah, yeah I think stuff like Artscan might be what turned me off from doing as much print and play because I could print out my own cards. And it's a lot of work, and they don't come out that great, honestly, because I'm cutting them by hand and all that. Or I could do something from Artscow that's going to look so much nicer. Yeah. So why should I do it myself? <laughs> yeah, and, I mean, it's it's proven. I mean, actually, I mean, if you think of games like Innovation, Carl Chuddock's fantastic game, Asmadi Games produced that as a 120-copy sort of alpha version, which I was lucky enough to get a copy of. And and sort of we ended up basically playing it and sort of pseudo playtesting it. Um, I mean, it didn't need much tweaking. I mean, it was fantastic when it came out. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that's quite an interesting dynamic nowadays. Is actually produce you know 150 copies of a game, get it out there in a fairly raw format, get the feedback. Um, if you've got the people who are willing to sort of you know to be to participate and understand that it's an alpha or a beta test rather than a final version. Um, I think that's because we've got the, the facilities to do it now. I mean, it is relatively cheap to do that, so why not do it? It could be a lot of fun. Yeah, it's true. Uh, you know, something like that I think happened with um, Hostage Negotiator, where, um, you know, some people play tested it, including myself, and we've talked about it, and it got more people interested in it. So by the time it showed up on Kickstarter, a lot of people were just interested in it because they'd heard about it. And I think that, that drew up some buzz. And, you know, it's, it's a good game anyway, and I don't think it necessarily needed any help, but having that extra attention was sure was uh, neat. And that was yeah. just from having playtest copies available. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're sort of bridging another debate, which people have a lot about Kickstarter and about the quality of games on Kickstarter. I think <clears throat> mm-hmm. there's no reason why you can't use, I mean, BGG, the one-player guild, is a fantastic resource. Why not get things out there? And get people looking at me. Why should it only be play tested in your local in your local pub or your local club? You've got the world out there. There are people out there who'd be who are absolutely delighted to give their time. There's a couple of guys I I, I deal with with Snowdonia expansions, and they're just amazing. The amount of time and effort they put in, you know, play testing stuff that I'm sending to them. It's just fantastic, and they're they're happy and they're willing to do it. And I think that's great. And there's a lot of people out there who who are happy and willing to do that. So why not call on them? Why not use them? Yeah, everybody wins that way. 
Yeah, absolutely. Everyone gets free copies of the game that way. They get play tester credits. They get a beer if they meet me in Essen. I usually buy, try and buy <laughs> beers. So it's getting a little bit late for you, but I'm going to go ahead and let you go. But is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Um, not really. No, no. I mean, I, I, that's that's what's on my mind at the moment. Who knows? I mean, in 12 months' time, who knows what else would have in, you know triggered something in my mind. But, yeah, I think I've got more than enough to worry about this year. <laughs> okay. I mean, yeah. Well, year's almost over. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's the one coming afterwards. That's okay. the business. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ouch. Okay. Well, um, th- then I'm going to he- go ahead and let you go. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you, Albert. It's been a pleasure. All right. Have a good evening. And you. So as you already know, today's game is Snowdonia by Tony Boydell. It was designed. It was published in 2002. The artist by Tony Boydell, Clemens Franz, and Charlie Paul. Now, if you didn't figure it out from the interview, this is a worker placement game. Um, in it, you are trying to build a railroad to the top of Snowdonia Mountain or other places, depending on what scenario you're playing. Your workers are basically um, digging out the rubble and then laying the tracks and even building the stations. The ultimate goal in this game is to get the most victory points. If you're playing solo, the goal is... Well, the the official scenario is you're going to play through all eight trains, trying to get a higher score every time, but that really doesn't work. Um, What I have seen people mention is try and get a score of 180 for a win. But it basically ends up being get the highest score you can. Now, one thought I had, which I haven't tried, is um, because... in this Well... Maybe I'm jumping ahead, but one thought I've had is you could also try and just play the same setup with each of the trains and try and get a consistently high sc- a win with each, 180 with each. But let me tell you more about the game before we talk about anything like that. This is a big game, has a lot of bits in it. In this game, you're going to get a... No, one neat thing I liked when I opened the box, it has a nice soft tissue paper at first, and then the rules, and then a tissue paper, and then the board, and then another tissue paper, which is a nice touch. Um, I've kept my tissue papers in the box. I don't know why. They're getting all pretty crumbly, but I really appreciate that it brought that extra layer of protection or whatever. Anyway, what this game has is a board, a large board, or I guess medium-sized board. Um, Pawns for each player, little, little plastic figures, little workers. Uh, cubes for each player, a bunch of cards, resource cubes, rubble cubes, and some discs to track weather and a few other things. The the resource cubes are there's three types of cubes that come in three different colors, and you can have a bag that you pull them out of, so you never know which cubes you're gonna have in any given from one given turn to the next. And there's a bunch of cards. There's different types of cards. There's cards to represent each station that you need to build to. There's cards to represent the rubble that you need to dig out and for, for getting from one station to the next. And in the back, the train track, once you've dug out the rubble and built the, tra- the tracks. There's cards to represent the different trains you could buy. There's cards that represent the different contracts you could buy, which let you do different things during the game, plus give you more victory points at the end. And on the flip side of those cards, you also get to, they determine the weather from turn to turn. So those are basically the components. 
um, this game has a bit of a long setup time. I haven't actually timed it, but it feels long to me. Um, you're gonna lay out the board. You're gonna draw, look through the different cards and find the station cards and set them up. Then you're gonna, each card tells you how many rebel cards go before it, basically between the previous station and that station. And you're gonna lay all those rebel cards out. You're gonna shuffle them and draw them randomly. Each has a different number of rebel, anywhere from say two pieces of rebel to five. You're gonna then place rebel cubes on each of those cards whatever number it has, plus on the station there's one or two spaces that also get rubble cubes and again it could be three, four, as much as six cubes on each space. So you set up all those cubes on all those cards, you you pull out your player pieces, you you get your bag of of uh, resources and event cubes, you, you seed the board with some of those, then you draw six before you start the game, you say, set out your first set of contract cards and determine the weather for the next couple rounds and then you're ready to play um, before I get into the play let me tell you a little bit more about the weather the there's three spaces that represent the weather in the game there's the current weather the weather that will be coming up next turn and the weather the turn after that and it could either be sunny raining or foggy in the base game the with, well, they can mean different things in different scenarios, but in the base game, if it's sunny, it's going to increase your your workers' rate to dig, dig a rubble and build tracks. If it's rainy, it's going to reduce their rates, and if it's foggy, they just can't do that at all. And so the way you're going to place the weather initially, you're going to draw the three contract cards, have them face down on the board, and you're going to use. They're going to be used during the game, but initially you're going to have them face down, and in the back of the cards you see the weather. The initial weather is just plain weather. And then and then the next two weathers you get from the, the second and third contract cards. So you so you put the cubes on the, those weather spaces, and you flip them over, and now you're ready to begin. Each turn after that, um, particularly in the solo game, at the end of the turn, you're going to collect any contract cards that were not bought by the player, Fill in three more, and then whatever's on the top of the, whatever weather's on the top of the deck, the draw deck, will be the weather for the two turns upcoming. Okay, so now you're ready to play. In this game, you have four figures. One is a surveyor. His job is to start at the beginning space, and hopefully throughout the game, you're going to be moving forward from station to station, surveying ahead. In an abstract kind of way, he's surveying ahead, trying to figure out what the, the board is, what the conditions are like and what, he's, what work workers have to do. Really what you're trying to do is move him ahead as far as you can to get more victory points. But you have him, he's going to be on a station, and you're going to have two workers that you could place and a third worker that is at the pub. If you want to get him to work, you basically got to spend some money. Um, the way you would do that is if you have a co-cube, you spend the co-cube, stick it back in the resource bag, and now you have access to the third worker for this round. There are a different number of there huh A B C D E F G. There are seven different spaces you could place your workers on. One is to collect resources from the board. One which is how you would get your co cube back if you spend it. One is to dig out rubble, one is to lay tracks, one is to convert the resources you've gathered or the rubble you have into either tracks or stone. 
Another one lets you build a station using generally using the stone you have. Another one lets you collect one of the contract cards, and one lets you move your surveyor forward. I suspect I forgot one of the action types, but that's probably okay. You will place your two or three workers on the action spaces. Take the actions. After you take the actions, you will then pick up any contract cards you didn't buy, discard them, draw three more, adjust the weather, and finally reach into your your resource bag and draw six new resource cubes. If any of them are white, those are event cubes, those are bad. You put them on the board and they're going to have different effects like the AI is going to dig up some track. This is representing what would have been an opponent in the regular game, I guess. It'll dig up some track, which means you don't get those rubble cubes. They just go away. Or it might build tracks, which flips over the cards. You're not going to get to get the victory points for them. It might build at a station, which basically blocks off an entire station. You can no longer build at that specific station. Um, and there's a couple other things it could do. And generally, they're all bad. And they all generally end up driving the game forward. If you do nothing the whole game, the AI would eventually build the whole track itself and the game would be over. Now, I should mention this is not an AI as in an opponent type of AI, but this is an AI that is using up some of the actions you might be doing and, and for example, slowly building up the track. The points aren't going anywhere. It's not playing like an opponent. It's just slowly building. And actually, and this AI exists also in the multiplayer game, so it's not something for the solo game. Even in the multiplayer game, it may be taking away things the players would want to do. So that's the, that was the whole round I described. Once you drew the six, event, the six cubes from the resource bag and placed them, you would then go ahead and take the next turn. Again, place your workers and keep going. It sounds really simple. The first time I read the rules, I said, oh, there's not much to it. This is simple, but, it, you know... But like any good worker placement game, as soon as uh, I sat down and was ready to take my first turn, I had absolutely no idea what to do. I have all these choices and you know, not having played the game yet, none of them make sense or mean anything to me. I think this is the kind of game that after a few plays, you start getting a good idea what sort of things you need to do and you start being able to play and things start falling together. For me, the initial play didn't go very well. Actually, I think I played it back in March or so of last year and I don't remember very well but it felt very static for me it didn't make a lot of sense in hindsight I now suspect I had quite a few rules wrong and I put the game away and I didn't play it again basically until last month until December at that point I said I really wanted to try it again I pulled it out I worked through the rule I worked through the game um it didn't go very well but I posted comments on the solitaire games on your table geek list and Learn some of the mistakes I was making from that, from other people posting to explain what I should have been doing. And I played a few more times, getting the rules more correct, and things really started clicking probably by the fourth game or so. And at this point, I'm really finding I really enjoy the game a lot. So I think this is the kind of game that you really need to give it a chance and, and play it at least three or four times before it's really going to start working well. There, there's a lot of... There's a lot of different choices you can make in the game, and you know, like any good worker placement, there's always a lot more you want to do than you can do on any given turn. And and I think really what this game about is on any given turn, based on all the different conditions, say the weather conditions, and uh, what contract cards are available, and what resource cubes are available, really are going to drive what you need to do that turn. 
And so you spend a lot of time trying to decide, you know, what what is the best course of action. There isn't always one clear course of action. You really do have to put some thought into it and, and planning. Now, there there's a few expansions for this game. As, as we talked about in the interview, there's one you could buy now. It's available, you know, retail or through your favorite online stores. It's called uh, Mount Washington and Jungfraubahn. Um, and this comes in a little talk box. It's just a deck of cards, basically. And they really, surprisingly, really do change the game around a lot. The the strategy you've been using in the basic game no longer really work the same in this game, in these games. And for example, in, in Jungfrau Bon, Jungfrau, the difference is you're blowing up the snow or rubble or whatever it is, snow covered rubble. Maybe I'm not clear on that, and getting it out of the way before you could even dig the rubble. And that small change actually does a lot to the game. You you have to plan a lot more ahead of time. And it, it felt to me like it had an extra layer of complexity, which was neat and, and quite challenging. I haven't played the Mount Washington expansion. I don't think I did. There's the one that was recently released. Uh, Tony print had it printed and sold it directly to people, so you can't find that at store, unfortunately. And I don't think, well, I don't know if there's any copies of that or not right now. Um, so you'd want to contact him about it, or, or go to, or go to the Surprise Stare Games website and check there. Um, again, that adds two different scenarios, and it's just a deck of cards. And then there's a few others that are going to be harder to find, but you could get a print and play. Or if you look online, you will find them. They're not too too expensive, um, but they're not as easy to get. I found that with the, I guess at this point I have six different scenarios, and it has quite a lot of variability. And, you know, the game does have a lot of variability, and that's one thing I like about it. Originally, I was saying a lot of randomness, but maybe it's not exactly the right thing, and, and that's partially true. But the variability in this game comes in the fact that there's three types of weather, and from game to game, you have no idea what the weather will be like. You may end up having a game where it's, it's very, very foggy, and you really don't get to do a lot of building, which would be very frustrating and slow in some ways, but will will add a, a, a very different challenge to the game. You may have games where it's just very sunny and work progresses really quickly and, and that's again very different. Or you may have somewhere in between. What contract cards are available are going to affect the game and maybe this is more randomness. When the contract cards are available really affect what you do because you may find in a given turn you know it's sunny and coming up the way it's going to turn foul the next few days. So right now is the best time to to dig out rubble and lay track because you're going to be the most productive right now. But you also find that maybe in a, a contract card you're really hoping to get is available this turn. Suddenly you have to decide, do I want to go ahead and do the digging or do I want to take that contract card? So what card available is available really makes a big difference. What train you're using makes a big difference. In the solo game, well, the game brings, I think, seven or eight different trains. But in the solo game, you pick one and you play the whole game with that single train. Each train is very different. For example, the the first train, the first train increases at the rate at which you dig out rubble. You actually get two extra cubes off whatever your rate is, which is a big difference. Normally, you draw in between one and four cubes off the board. The another train lets you gather more resource cubes. One train gives you a lot more victory points, but is cheap to run. So there, there are a lot of differences, and the trains that you have, the train that you have, will change your strategy a whole lot in the game. Yeah, and finally, the scenario that you choose will also make a big difference in the game. 
it could add more complexity. It could just change the order of things. Um, one of the scenarios I played, ooh, I don't remember which one it was right now. Instead of having the surveyor going ahead and, and you're moving from space to space, he actually becomes an extra worker. So you now have a lot more actions to take each turn, but you also have more things you need to do. So all this variability, of course, adds a whole lot of replayability to the game. So one of the things I was thinking was, you could, for example, take the event deck, shuffle it up and figure out what order the cards are in, and play that play a game with the first train with that set up, and then play the same event cards in the same order with a different train, and repeat with all different trains and try and win with each train. I think that would be pretty challenging, and probably time-consuming. It's a little tricky because you got to sort the cards and keep track of that. It's doable because all the cards are numbered. But that would be an interesting challenge. The turns in this game end up being really fast, other than the time you spend trying to plan your turn. Um, you only have two, maybe three workers, and the actions for them are always really quick. So what, when you take your actions, you know, you pull your worker off the board and gather a bunch of cubes, or or take a contract card, or flip over a couple train cards and put a cube on the board. It's They're really, really simple actions. Then after that, you draw up the contract cards you didn't purchase, place new ones, adjust the weather, and draw the six cubes for the event. I I don't know, each turn could go as fast as, you know, that those steps could go as fast as two minutes or three minutes. Again, most of the time I found for me especially is, is planning the turn and thinking that out. And you'll find that as you play this game a lot, you actually have a whole lot of control in the game and in planning what happens and when things happen. You don't have a ton of control because, for example, you may be counting on a, on building a certain station and telling you draw an event cube that totally messes that, that plan. You know, again, that's another thing you, that uh, really adds variability to the game. And this is actually randomness, is drawing those event cubes. You don't know what resources are going to be available or, or when from turn to turn. If, for example, you're not drawing coal, you're going to find for that whole game you really don't have a third worker. Now, I've had I had that problem. I've had games where I've been short a worker for a turn or two, but most games I'm always using three workers. And I think that's critical. Another thing I've enjoyed about this game is actually pimping it out. Um, for example, the young Fraubon uses uh, dynamite. The the rule book says to use the yellow cubes as dynamite. And the cards actually show the image, the icon for the, the yellow cubes whenever they talk about dynamite. I found um, that meeplesource.com sells cute little dynamite resource bits. So I got some of those to pimp out the game with that. The... The last expansion the that came out, the Necropolis Railway slash Neuhauser Brocklebon, the Necropolis Railway, Tony had some coffins that he was selling with it. He had a limited supply of those, so some people got them, some didn't, unfortunately. Um, somebody mentioned that you could get the same coffin from a different retailer, so I found that online and ordered a pre-painted coffin. So now I've got a little coffin for when I play that scenario. The In that scenario, the surveyor is dead, so the coffin is used as a surveyor. You know, and there's a lot of other little things like that you could probably do. Um, and I've really, really had fun with that. So I think I'll leave it at that. This is Snowdonia. Uh, I've really, really enjoyed this game a lot. It was a surprise how much I enjoyed it. As I said, I played it in March and it didn't work out that well for me, so...
when I was starting to play again in December, I guess I wasn't expecting a lot of it, but I found it really interesting, very challenging, very thinky game. It's the kind of game where I could actually take a month off the podcast to, to play a whole bunch more. I won't do that, but, you know, it, it's, it was that much fun. Well, that's the end of today's episode. If you'd like to contact me, you can find me as Fractaloon on BoardGameGeek, or you can email me at oneplayeralbert at gmail.com. You can also post comments on the Podcast Geek list on BoardGameGeek, or come visit the One Player Guild on BoardGameGeek for comments and discussion and whatnot. The intro music is copyright Angus and is protected under a Creative Commons license and can be found at gemendo.com. The show is published under Creative Commons non-commercial share-alike license. Thanks for listening.